Uh, as we're looking at this text, if you're not familiar, the book of 2 Timothy obviously is written by Paul. Uh, it's his last letter before he dies. Uh, he's in a second Roman imprisonment. His first imprisonment, he was in prison in Caesarea for two years, and then he was imprisoned in Rome for two years. Then he was let go. Um, and so at this time, he's in prison under Nero. Uh, because Paul was a Roman citizen, he could not be crucified like Peter. He could not be thrown into the lion's den. He could only be, one of the few ways he could die was being decapitated, decapitated which Nero eventually did. And so during this time, he's writing his son in the faith, Timothy, to challenge him to be faithful um, as he's about to pass from the scene. Um, he starts in the first chapter, says, everyone in Asia has departed from me. Um, because of associating with a prisoner of the state, they could have also been imprisoned and possibly put to death. And so he calls Timothy to suffer like a good soldier of Christ. He tells him to not neglect his gift, but to stir it into flame. He tells him to faithfully guard the deposit that has been passed on to him and to preach the word in season and out of season, because a time had already come where people were no longer preaching the word of God, but instead they were itching people's ears and making them feel good. And so Paul wanted Timothy to be a faithful servant. And in this text, he challenges him about being a a person that God can use greatly. He gives him an illustration of a master who has a great household. And obviously, God is the master of this household. In this household, there are vessels, both for special purposes and for common ones. Uh, there are also servants. Uh, however, not all servants and not all vessels have the same usefulness. In 2 Timothy 2, 21, Paul says this, Those who cleanse themselves... From the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. I think there's a PPT for this, this, this part right here. Um, in Romans 9, 20 through 21, I don't remember what's on the PPT. I don't look at it. So, but hopefully. In Romans 9, 20 through 21, Paul talks about how... God is the potter, we are the clay. He makes one vessel for special purposes, and he makes others for common uses. So he talks about God's sovereignty in making people that he can use greatly, like an Abraham or a Paul. Um, but however, in this text, it's not so much focusing on God's sovereignty in raising up people to use greatly. Here it has to do with your choice. The decisions that you make will affect whether God can use you greatly, a vessel for special purposes, or being a vessel for common use. So it has to do with human responsibility here in this text. And again, Paul is about to pass from the scene, and he wants Timothy to be a vessel that God can use in a great way. When we look at Scripture, we see many vessels that were used for special purposes, such as Abraham, Moses, Ruth, Hannah, David, Mary, the disciples, and Paul. Yes, God sovereignly chose them, he was in control of that process, taking one lump of clay and making it something that special like a, a vase or a china, but yet they had a responsibility in being someone that God could use greatly as well. And so as we look at this text, we'll see qualities of people that God can use greatly. Paul challenges Timothy and us to be someone that God can use for special or noble purposes. And so we're going to look at five qualities of people Greatly used by God. Here's the first one. To be greatly used by God, we must separate. Sorry, I just got to ask. Is this too loud for you guys? I do this almost every Sunday at my church because it always sounds loud to me and everybody's like, no. So I'm sorry, I just had to ask. To be greatly used by God, we must separate from ungodly relationships. We must separate from ungodly relationships. Look at verse 20 through 21. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Now, again, the, the house clearly refers to God's church, where in Scripture it's called God's building and the temple of God and other places 
However, who the articles, the various articles are, are more difficult to discern. In fact, I'm going to give you three different views and some popular commentators who would take them. Here's the first view. Some believe that the vessels for special or honorable purposes refer to true teachers, and the vessels for common or dishonorable purposes refer to false teachers. John Stott takes this view. The reason he takes this view is in the context, in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells him to study, to show himself approved, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth. Uh, he tells him to be a faithful teacher, one who's approved by God. And then in verse 17 and 18, he refers to two false teachers, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were teaching that the resurrection had passed, probably teaching some type of spiritual resurrection, which would be common in some liberal churches today, not an actual physical one, but a spiritual one. So he said, so therefore he takes the argument that, that these are referring to true teachers versus false teachers. You need to separate from false teachers in the church. Here's the second view. Some believe that the vessels for special or honorable purposes and the vessels for common or dishonorable purposes refer to true believers. Uh, distinguish between faithful and unfaithful. John MacArthur takes this view, and it seems to be a minority view from my reading. Um, he refers back to the previous verse in 2 Timothy 2, 18 through 19, when Paul says, they say that the resurrection has already taken place, referring to these two false teachers, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Uh, here in this context, Paul is talking about how faith of some were ruined by these false teachers. However, though many were faith were ruined, many were deconstructing, many were falling away from the church. The solid foundation referring to the church, the true church, was going to stand. And those who are true believers, they turn away from false teaching and sin, and they faithfully follow the Lord. And so this foundation, the church, does not fall away right before these, talking about this household. So John MacArthur and some others take the view that this is referring to true believers, but those with different various character. Um, and various usefulness based on their character. Here's the third view, and this is the one I take. Some believe that the vessels for special or honorable purposes refer to true believers, and the vessels for common or dishonorable purposes refer to false, false believers, including false teachers in the house of God. William McDonald, he's the author of uh, the, the, the Believer's Bible Commentary, which is, that happens to be my favorite single-volume Bible commentary, specifically the New Testament. He takes this view. And the reason he does this is you, if you look just a little bit further in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, Paul begins to warn Timothy. He says, in the last days, there will be terrible times. Um, the word can actually be translated perilous or violent. And in the context, it's not talking about the world. It's talking about in the church there will be violent times. Um, he goes on and describes the character of the people during this time. Not violent because of uh, outside forces, but violent because of the people. He describes the people will be lovers of themselves. They'll love money and pleasure instead of being lovers of God. They'll be boastful, proud, abusive. They'll have a form of godliness, the outside shell. They will say the right words like evangelical and pro-life and various other things. They'll have the right words, the right terminology, but they'll deny the power thereof. They won't live what they declare. And he tells them to separate from people that are like that. They're not truly safe. Then he goes on and he describes specifically some of the teachers. He should particularly stay away from false teachers who tend to focus their ministry on gullible women, leading them astray. Uh, Timothy and other believers should cleanse themselves from the latter. Cleanse themselves from people, in, and this is something that Christ taught. If you read Matthew chapter 13, it's called the parables of the kingdom. And when Christ is describing the mystery of the kingdom, he describes how it'll be tares and wheat. Tares planted by the evil one, wheat planted by God. They will stay together and dwell together for the time frame, but in the last days, the angels will take the wheat into the barn, and the weeds will be thrown into the fire. They will dwell together. False believers and true believers together. He goes on and describes how there will be 
good fish and bad fish. The good fish, they're all taken in the net. The kingdom of God's like this. The good fish are taken into the kingdom. The bad fish are thrown into the fire. Christ warned that this would be how the church was. But there will be certain seasons. In fact, the word seasons in uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 is not chronos referring to time like seconds and minutes and hours. It's uh, kairos, seasons. There will be periods of extreme violence in the church, as we saw in the Middle Ages, Muslims being killed, Jews being killed in the Crusades, tremendous violence in the church, people of different beliefs. If you didn't believe in uh, infant baptism those days, many times you would be put to death. Perilous times in uh, in the church, seasons where things are really bad. And you'll start to see much deconstruction happening, people falling away from the faith because of the violence that's so common in the house of God. In James chapter 4, he talks about their warring with one another. You murder. They were murdering with one another even in that early church period time as we've seen in different times in history. And so Paul tells him, you need to separate from people like this who profess Christ on the outside but live like the devil daily throughout the week. If you're going to be someone that's going to be used, you must be very careful about your relationships. So whatever view we take, it's very clear here that Paul is saying we must separate from ungodly relationships. We must cleanse, thoroughly cleanse out, purify ourselves if we're going to be people that we can be used greatly. If our relationships are primarily with professing believers who compromise with the world, love sin, caught in false doctrine, it will hinder our usefulness. It's been commonly said that where you'll be in the next 10 years will be largely affected by the people you associate with, the books you read, and the media you watch. Where you're going to be in the future is affected by those things. Proverbs 13.20 says this, He who walks with the wise shall become wise, but the friend of sinners, uh, or the friend of fools, shall suffer harm. Now, in wisdom literature, when you're reading the Psalms and the Proverbs, foolishness and wisdom is not referring to someone's intellectual ability. It's actually referring to, this, referring to their spirituality and their righteousness. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Proverbs 9.10 says, the Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, living a righteous life. And so he who walks with those who are righteous and who are godly are going to become more righteous and godly. You walk with someone who's zealous for evangelism, you're going to find that you're going to grow in your your evangelical ability. You walk with someone who's serious about God and knowing his word, getting in a church community that's really growing and thriving, you're going to become more like God, more wise. But if your strongest and most close relationships are with those who are not living for God, not following the Lord, you will suffer spiritual harm. You will find yourself declining and and growing further and further away from God and eventually further and further away from the people of God. And we, we get a good picture of this, I think, in God's call for Abraham to leave his father's household. If you only read Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. You would think that Abraham immediately left his family and his home and went to Canaan. However, when you read Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, we see that Stephen, in telling the story, tells us that Abraham was initially called in Mesopotamia, his original home, not in Haran. In fact, in Genesis 11, it tells us that Abraham, instead of leaving his family, moves with his father, Terah, which is my wife's name, which I always think is interesting, but spelled differently, moves with his wife, Terah, and Lot, and they go to Haran, and they stay. In fact, the word Terah in Hebrew means delay. Abraham delays in Haran. He doesn't faithfully follow God's word. Like a a young, immature believer, he has a delay in his spiritual growth. He's not progressing the things that God has called him to. And it's when Terah dies, Genesis 12, 1 picks up there, that Abraham leaves and begins to go into the promised land. And eventually in Genesis 13, Lot leaves him as well. And God says at the end of Genesis 13, after Lot leaves him, he says, walk the land. I'm going to give this to you. See the sand? I'm going to make your children like the sands of the seashore. He reaffirms his promise with him. 
No doubt for him, a great reason that God had called him to leave his father and his father's household, Joshua tells us, is that they were idol worshipers. Abraham was delayed in fulfilling God's call on his life because of the relationships that he kept. If I was fully honest with you, I accepted Christ at a church somewhat like this, a Baptist church in uh, Belgium. I was seven years old. My dad was in the Air Force for 20 years, and I lived 11 years in Europe. Accepted Christ at seven years old. I actually felt called to ministry when I was nine. Um, but I didn't really grow in my spiritual life. I was kind of very compromised all the way to about 19 years old. I was going into my sophomore year of college. And for me, one of the primary things that was hindering my spiritual life was my relationships. Uh, when I was with my friends, my language changed. The things that I did change. I would evangelize. I tried to read the Bible every day. I loved the Lord. But my relationships were a strong hindrance on the progression of my spiritual life. That's commonly true with many Christians, maybe some of you here today. Many people, their relationships are the primary reason that's keeping them from being a vessel of honor that God can use for every good work. He can use them for some things, but he can't use them for every good work because of the relationships they keep which affect their character and keep them from being a vessel of honor. Are any relationships keeping you back from being a vessel that God can use greatly. Here's a second point or characteristic of someone that God can use greatly. To be greatly used by God, we must flee evil desires. We must flee evil desires or the evil desires of youth. The word flee here in the Greek is fuego. I actually like the way that, where that word sounds, just fuego. It's where we get the English word fugitive from. A fugitive, in fact, first of all, this is in the present tense, meaning that this person is continually fleeing. Um, a fugitive in, the, in, 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 our, in today's language is someone who has obviously committed a crime or is uh, disliked by a certain government or whatsoever, and they're fleeing, trying not to be caught. But this person isn't fleeing a government. He is running from sin. He doesn't want to go back to what he used to be. He doesn't want to fall into the, to the, uh, into, the, into the strongholds that used to be in his life. So he's someone who's fleeing sin, like what we saw with uh, Joseph when uh, Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with him. He flees. He jumps through the window. He's not willing to be caught in sin. In the same way, when God is looking to use someone greatly, he finds someone who's running away from sin. Now, he doesn't talk about just any sin. He says, flee the evil desires of youth. And so these desires are especially prominent in adolescents or young adults. Um, Paul doesn't explain what they are. Therefore, we're left to discern them both from the context and from experience. Here's, here's the first uh, desire, evil desire of the youth. The first one is being argumentative is a youthful desire we must flee. If anybody has teenagers in here, you can go ahead and just say amen. Um, being argumentative is a youthful desire. I didn't hear amen. I heard laughing, but not amen. It's a youthful desire we must flee. We see this in the context, verse 23. Uh, Paul calls Timothy to avoid foolish and stupid arguments because they just lead to quarrels. He tells Timothy in verse 24 that the Lord's servant doesn't quarrel, doesn't fight. Um, arguing and fighting, specifically for growing believers over doctrine, ministry, methods, is very common, again, for a young believer who's growing in their spiritual knowledge. Uh, they are right to be passionate about truth, but the manner that they do so can often be harmful. It's common to find young believers that are growing in a love for God's word, fighting over doctrines, like Arminianism versus Calvinism and the use of spiritual gifts, male and female roles in the church. Nothing wrong with discussing doctrine with the hope of coming to the truth. That's healthy and it's good. However, we must be careful of a contentious spirit that wants to prove oneself right no matter the cost, even if it means fighting. We must flee the tendency to be argumentative. In verse 14, Paul says it actually ruins hearers. Those who watch us fighting and arguing, it ruins our children when they see us arguing and fighting in our marriage. It ruins people, and it hinders our usefulness. Are we argumentative? Do we always have to win our arguments? Second, being impatient is a youthful desire 
We must flee. Anybody who has toddlers in here can say amen. All right. My, my little toddler, I have a, a, a three-year-old we've been trying to adopt for the last three years. Anytime I tell him no, he just falls on the floor flat on his butt. Wham! Right? Meaning I tell him, it's going to be okay, Jay. I'm going to get this for you in a second. It's just like there's no patience. We're t- we have to train them in patience. Unfortunately, many of us still struggle with this characteristic, me included, Um, But youth, they want everything now, and they have problems waiting. This lack of patience often leads to various sins. They can't wait for a godly spouse. Um, They can't wait for Mr. Right Now, so they they can't wait for Mr. Right, so they find Mr. Right Now. Um, They compromise in their dating. They can't wait for God to show them next steps or open doors, so they get angry at God. They can't wait for others to change, and therefore they complain, they argue, they stay in a state of frustration. Um, They haven't developed any patience. Impatience is a characteristic of youth, of those who are youth, youths. And patience is a characteristic of the aged. If we're going to be greatly used by God, we must flee impatience and learn how to wait on God and others. Every person God used greatly throughout Scripture He taught them how to wait. Abraham had to wait 25 plus years. Joseph had to wait 13 years. David had to wait 15 years to become king. Moses had to wait 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus waited till he was 30, plus a time in the wilderness. Even Paul, I think it's 11 years or so before he was taken with Barnabas to serve in Antioch. When God is going to raise up somebody that he can greatly use, he teaches them how to wait. He puts them in a waiting season to train them. If you're in a waiting season, I know it's hard, but it's a good thing for you. It's, a, it's what God does when he's preparing a man of God or a woman of God. He makes them wait. Are you, being, are you allowing yourself to be trained how to wait on the Lord? Third, selfish ambition is a youthful desire. We must flee. The young are commonly focused on being great. Uh, from a young age, I had to, we had to be first in line when we were, when we were young in school, first, to, first at lunch, first at the playground, first chosen for our sports. We had to be the cutest, the smartest, the most successful. We had to have the best grades. This often transitions into our spiritual life as well. Christ's young disciples often argued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. This is common amongst young ministers today, leading to competitiveness and worldliness, Selfish ambition leads to insecurity, jealousy, and depression, especially when it's unfulfilled. It leads to pride when we become successful. Christ said if we wanted to be first, we need to be last and servant of all. He says if you want to be great, speaking to Jews who had a very similar culture to 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 Koreans, he says you must be like the youngest because the youngest was the one who had to go serve. who's, Who's the oldest here? Oh, you're the youngest, you go do this, right? He says, you must be like the youngest, right? You must flee selfish ambition if you're going to be greatly used by God and be willing to be last and to serve others. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, I'll add verse 5 on there. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Verse 5, let this mind be in you that was once in Christ Jesus. Spiritual immaturity manifests in, in, in itself in trying to make our name great, while spiritual, matur- spiritual maturity manifests itself in trying to make God's name great and make others great. It's common for the aged to focus on mentoring and developing others as a life pursuit. Are you fleeing selfish ambition? It's a common youthful desire. Fourth, lust is a youthful desire that we must flee. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body, but he who commits sexual morality sins against his own body. Obviously, sexual morality is an extremely dangerous sin because it's a sin against ourselves. It causes emotional scars, spiritual bondage, sometimes physical disease. This is something that all believers must avoid because of its consequences. It's especially hard to break from 
and it hinders our usefulness. If God is going to greatly use us, we must flee the evil desire of lust. Now, obviously, many of these desires, they decrease with age, but they never totally leave us. Therefore, we must constantly flee from them. We must flee being argumentative, impatient, selfish, and lustful. As we flee these and other sinful desires, God can use us in a greater way. He begins to form us into a vessel of honorable purposes, someone he can use in a greater capacity. Are you fleeing sinful desires? Third characteristic of someone that God can greatly use. To be greatly used by God, we must pursue godly character. We must pursue godly character. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. The word pursue is in the present tense. Again, so it means to continually run after. It can also be translated to persecute or to continually persecute. When one is persecuting someone, uh, they just keep on attacking that person. In the same way as us as believers trying to be someone that God can use, no matter how many times we fall, no matter how many times we make mistakes, We must keep getting up and attacking or pursuing godly character. Proverbs 24, 16 says, The righteous falls seven times but gets back up. Um, What are the aspects of godly character that we must pursue as mentioned in this verse? One, we must pursue righteousness. We must pursue righteousness. Righteousness refers to to right behavior in conformity with God's word. It includes various deeds that honor God and bless others, like giving, sharing the gospel, practicing hospitality, ministering to the hurting, teaching God's word. It includes right thinking, which ultimately leads to right action. If we're going to be used by God, we must cultivate righteousness, starting with our attitudes and our heart motives and ending ultimately in acts. Second, We must pursue faith. We must pursue faith. Faith probably has two aspects to it. It refers to being faithful, but also to trusting God. We must become people who are dependable. Our yes must mean yes. Our no must mean no. When God looks for someone he can use, he finds someone who's faithful with the little Like David, who's just simply faithful over shepherding sheep and doing it as a way to honor God. And God says he's someone who could lead an army, faithfully shepherd an army of soldiers. And then he's someone who could faithfully lead a kingdom. He was simply faithful with the little that God gave him, and he was eventually promoted. In the same way, whatever task that God has given you, being an English teacher, working in the military, being a parent, a homemaker, whatever task that God has given you, that is your stewardship. And you must seek to do that stewardship and be found to be someone who's faithful with that stewardship because when you're faithful with little, God will make you faithful over much. For students in here, simply being a good steward of your homework and your studies, doing your best to honor God, he finds someone who's faithful with little and he makes them faithful over much. But also, this doesn't just refer to faithfulness, but again, refers to trust in God Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. We must believe his word, trust his promises to both please him and accomplish the works that God's called us to do. Uh, Steve Cole is a pastor, a retired pastor in Flagstaff, Arizona, and he wrote this um, story about, in his sermon about this, about a professor from Princeton who taught Donald, Donald Barnhouse. Many of you do not know who Donald Barnhouse is, but in the middle, middle 1900s, probably one of the most, if not the most famous pastor in America, pastored for about 50 years. Um, Steve Cole said this in his, his illustration about this. Many years ago, there was a learned Hebrew professor at Princeton Seminary named Robert Dick Wilson. He could read, as I remember, more than 30 Semitic languages. One time about 12 years ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse had graduated. He went back to seminary to preach to the students. Dr. Wilson sat down near the front. After the message, he went forward and shook Barnhouse's hand. He said, 
when my boys come back. I come to see if they're big godders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry will be. Barnhouse asked him to explain, and he replied, Well, some men have a little God, and they are always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and the transmission of Scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and so I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. He went on to tell Barnhouse that he could see that he had a great God and that God would bless his ministry. Well, for us, we could ask ourselves this question as well. Do we have a big God or do we have a little God? I think some of the ways that we can tell is by the shape and the size of our prayers. What are we believing God for? Is it just simply to make it through the day? Are we in workplaces that we're not? Are we praying for the salvation and revival of our workplaces, for our bosses to know the Lord? Are we praying for our churches to be greatly used to expand his kingdom? What are our prayers like? Are we, one of the things I love when you read Paul's prayers in the New Testament, you always see these superlatives in the Greek, right? Like, from the riches of his grace, that God may supply you with perseverance through the riches of his grace in Colossians chapter 1. He just adds all these superlatives onto all of his prayers. Are you a big godder? Are you a little godder? We must pursue faith in order to be used by God. Commonly, Christ would say, as it is unto your faith, let it be unto you. What are you believing God for? Third, if we're going to be greatly used or have the, the, the character pursuing righteousness, we must pursue love. Love is the Greek word agape. In this text, referring to God's love. It's not love hindered by the limits of our emotions. It's a decisive love. It's an act of the will. It's a choice that we choose. This is how we can love people who are unlovable or even our enemies. In Matthew 5, when we're called to love our enemies, it's not um, phileo love or any. It's specifically agape. I have never felt all good, emotional, and giddy and butterflies in my stomach about someone who's criticizing me. Right? Never felt that way. But I can choose to pursue agape like I'm commanded to. Um, I can choose to love them um, in a, in a, in a, as an act of the will because God commands me to. And so that's the type of love God calls us to do with others. I've had to counsel young men and women who are married that are struggling and considering divorce. And they say, Pastor Greg, I, I think we just fell out of love. I'm like, what are you talking about? God's commanded you to love your enemy, right? Certainly you can love your wife. Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives that Christ loved the church. Agape your wife. This means that even when she's unlovable, that you choose to serve her. You choose to bless her. You choose to build her up. And as Christ pursued the church, you as an act of the will can certainly do that even if you don't feel it emotionally. And certainly we can do that when we have deal with people who are difficult. Romans chapter 12. If your enemy uh, is thirsty, give him a drink. And if your enemy is hungry, give him food. Let us not be overcome by evil, but let us overcome evil with good. And by doing this, we heap fiery coals on, this hair, on their head. Let us not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As an act of the will. Now, I have never cooked for someone who criticized me. I've never run after, you know, tried to give them food. But I do try to practice that by people who are sometimes my biggest critics um, maybe unfortunately, maybe this says something negative about me, but they get more prayer than even my family does. Because every time the negative emotions show back up, every time the feelings rush over me, all I can do if I'm going to be obedient to God is to bless them and to pray for them and to pray for their family. And as I do that, I believe hopefully it overcomes the evil in their heart, but even more so it overcomes the evil in my heart. It changes me as I choose to pursue agape rather than simply how I feel emotionally. Fourth, we must pursue peace. Romans 12, 18 says, As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This means continually humbling ourselves. Everyone who's married say amen. That's being married is, a, is training in humility. Um, how, I don't have too much time. I'm not going to keep going on that because I could keep going on that. <laughs> I'll share a second. One of the things that last three years have probably been, at least last two and a half, probably been the hardest times I've had in marriage. I've been married for about 16 years. 
Uh, some of you know we had adoption. We have a, a child we've tried to adopt two times, and now we're on the third. Failed every time. We were trying to leave Korea. We got stuck in Korea. We may have to be here another 15 years to adopt him when he's 18. Um, me and my wife had different views on the pandemic, <laughs> different views on a lot of stuff happening in the U.S., and we just had, we were like in a pressure cooker, and we had to make lots of major decisions, and when you think differently, you can, you tend to have, and, and that's, compl- you have to commonly make all these major decisions, there's more conflict, and so God put us in a pressure cooker, and yet at the same time, one of the good things about any trial that God allows and any marital counseling, just like you teach somebody that God has used his trials to develop their character, same thing with your marriage. God uses trials to develop marriages and to make them stronger. And one of the things I had to learn was Ephesians 5, when the husband loves his wife and gives his life for her, I, had, I was like, okay, I'm just going to have to die. <laughs> I'm just going to have to die. And, and as Christ doesn't defend himself, I need to be quiet. I don't need to defend myself every time. And so Christ was, I was learning how to humble myself and die to serve the woman that God's called me to agape, to pursue her as Christ pursues the church. There's been a lot of humbling for myself, uh, humbling that I've had to learn in these last couple of years where God has had us in a pressure cooker of difficulty. We must pursue peace as much as depends on ourselves. We must confess our failures. We must forgive Unforgiveness is a tremendous stronghold that hinders, hinders our ability to be used by God. Christ said if we don't forgive, God can't forgive us. He said if we don't forgive from the heart, we'll be handed over to the torturers. Matthew 18, I believe referring to discipline and specifically demonic torturers. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, hand this man over to Satan. There's a lot of people that have a lot of emotional issues and things like that because they've never learned how to forgive that person who hurt them. And the enemy continually brings back up the versus this person hurt them when they were young, and now they struggle with the milkman, they struggle with the teacher, they struggle with their boss, and there's just all these struggles with unforgiveness because that's a winning card in their life. And as Ephesians 4 says, don't go to bed angry lest you give the devil a foothold. He knows that's a right. It's an open door for him. And so there are many people that can't be used by God because they, they just can't forgive. And the enemy keeps bringing up issues or conflicts with people to keep them from becoming someone who's useful for the kingdom of God. Are you pursuing peace or are you holding grudges? If we're going to be greatly used by God, we must be people that keep running after, that keep running after godly character internally, outside. Here's the next one. I think this is number four and then we'll have five. To be greatly used by God, we must pursue Godly relationships. We must pursue godly relationships. Again, verse 22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Those with pure hearts aren't perfect, but they faithfully pursue a right relationship with God. They want to serve him. Certainly, we see this throughout Scripture. Moses had Joshua, David had Jonathan and Nathan, Elijah had Elisha, Hezekiah had Isaiah, Daniel had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Christ had the 12 disciples, and within the 12, he had the three, the leaders of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, where he would go up on a mountain to pray with them or go to um, various places to intercede together. Um, In order to be greatly used by God, Paul had Barnabas and Timothy, In order to be greatly used by God, we must surround ourselves with godly people who are serious, serious about faithfully pursuing God. Again, Proverbs 13, 20, he who walks with the wise becomes wise. Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another's countenance. We can't become godly on our own. We need to be surrounded by brothers and sisters who are fighting, who are falling down and getting back up, fighting to be pure as well. They pray for us. They hold us accountable. They encourage us. And they even help train us. Elisha received an impartation from Elijah, right? Timothy received a gift through the laying on of Paul's hands and the elders' hands as well. Similarly, walking with godly brothers and sisters, especially those who are more mature than us, will help us grow and further equip us 
for kingdom work. You want to grow in your evangelism? Find the person in here who's most zealous for evangelism. You want to grow in your mercy? Get around somebody who wants to serve orphans and the poor and the widow. You want to grow in your teacher? Go and sit under someone who's faithfully teaching the word of God. And as you do so, many times you receive an impartation of special grace that comes from ministering and walking with those who are pursuing the Lord out of a pure heart. Sadly, many Christians can't be used greatly by God simply because they're isolationists. And let me tell you something. If you're an introvert, this may be harder for you. This may be harder for you if you're an introvert. Just in the same way for an extrovert, it's many times harder to be alone with God. To be in the word and the prayer and spend long times for the extrovert, that's more of a discipline than it's easier for the introvert. But for the introvert, they have to step out of their comfort zone and be around people. They have to step out of their comfort zone and reach out to people and see how they're doing and ask how they're... They have to be willing to share openly. Matthew 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you can be healed. Many times, God's grace just doesn't come when you're in by yourself at home, worshiping with the Lord. Much of his grace comes through the body. When you're struggling in your marriage, you have people that you open up and share with, you confess your sins, then there's prayer and healing. There's a lot of people, even extroverts in here, who just don't have any, any openness, no sharing with anybody, their struggles, their struggles on the internet, their struggles in their marriage, their struggles with their thought life or their, their, uh, their attraction. There's no one they're sharing with, and therefore they miss much of the grace that God wants to give them because it comes through people. It comes through the, the, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. There's insight. There's wisdom that God may want to give you, and it may not just come from your time in God's word. It also comes by time with his people. And so many people uh, can't be used greatly by God because they're isolationists. They walk on their own. They fail on their own. When they fall down, there's no one to help pick them up. We must partner with others by getting involved in small groups and ministries and mentoring and accountability relationships. If we're going to be used by God, greatly used, you've got to pursue relationships with godly people. Here's the last point about to be greatly used by God. We must become servants. We must become servants. Verse 23 through 26. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Again, the household metaphor, there are vessels or articles in this house, but there are also servants, which was common in the ancient world to have a servant in the house. Paul refers to the Lord's servant in verse 24. The Greek word here is doulos, which can be translated bond slave. Uh, Paul often called himself a slave, depending on the translation you, you, you use, a slave of Christ or a servant of Christ. Bond slaves had no will of their own and were totally under the command of their master. Even their clothes were owned by their master. Uh, this, type of, this is the type of person, the type of person God uses is a servant. He is totally committed to serving God and others. It's interesting to consider. Think about when God calls somebody he's going to use greatly in Scripture. They're often called while they were serving. David and Moses were caring for sheep. Gideon was threshing grain, no doubt, to provide for his family as he was the least in his household. Oh, you're the youngest. You go take care of the, the grain. Many of the disciples were fishing or working other jobs, again, to provide for their family. When God looks for a person to use, he finds someone who serves. Selfish people focus on serving their own needs and not that of others, and therefore can't be greatly used. What are characteristics of a servant, as mentioned in this text in verse 22 through 26? First, servants know their master. Servants know their master. The Lord's servant, in verse 24, is possessive. God owns this person. He faithfully submits to the Lord. One of the reasons people don't serve is that God really isn't their master. They live for their own pleasure or somebody else's instead of God's. Servants know their master. If you're working at a company and someone tells you what to do, you can be like, you ain't my boss. <laughs> Hold up, man. This is, this is my authority. This is my chain of authority right here. Right? I can't be, I have too many bosses. This is, this is my chain. You got to know who your boss is. 
then it's God. Because there's the world wants you to go this way. Friends and family sometimes want you to go this way. You got to know who your boss is. You got to get the boss's instructions. Right? You got to know who your boss is. Servants are kind. The word kind can also be translated mild or gentle in verse 24. A great model of this is Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 in the ESV. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. In the same way a mother cares for her child, providing food, emotional support, and training, the Lord's servant must do the same for others. He must be kind when people fail. They must be kind and gentle and build them up. Are you serving others like a mother, thinking about them, reaching out to them, bearing their pain? God cares for us that way, and he uses those who care for others in like manner. They're kind. Third, servants must teach. Paul says in verse 24, the Lord's servant must be able to teach. Therefore, the primary tool of the Lord's servant is God's word. Um, he uses it to teach, rebuke, correct, and train others in righteousness, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 7. Are you studying God's word? Are you learning it so you can share it with others to help train them, to help them get through their emotional issues or their family issues? Fourth, servants must not be resentful. The word actually means to bear without resentment in verse 24. Unfortunately, servants are often unappreciated and sometimes even treated harshly. In those moments, the Lord's servant must not return evil for evil or hold grudges. He must bear people's unkindness in a patient manner. Again, he does this because his serving, his life is not primarily about himself, but serving God and others. Fifth, servants must be gentle to others. The word gentle can be translated meek. It was used of a wild horse that was eventually trained and became tame. You could put the, the, the lasso on the right side of the neck and he would shoot off to the left. And you put it on the left side and shoot off to the right. Where before he could not be controlled, now he was under the control of the master. He was meek. It was power under control. It wasn't weakness. It was now all this harness. This power is all harnessed. Again, instead of responding in pride or anger like we used to, right, before when offended, the Lord's servant responds in humility to others. 1 Corinthians 4.13, Paul talks about when slandered, we answer gently. He could have rebuked, but he used that heart. He harnessed that power. Instead of responding negatively at a person, he responded with gentleness. When slandered, we answer kindly. Christ called himself meek and lowly. The person God uses serves others with gentleness instead of harshness, just like Christ did. Six, servants must hope in God. I'll read it again. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Paul gives us in this text a picture of the spiritual war that the servant of God is engaged in. He describes a person, probably a believer, who is taken captive to do Satan's will. He is ensnared, the word means trapped there, and drugged. Come to their senses literally means to become sober or to come to one's senses again. Satan drugs believers through worldliness, lust, the fear of man, self-pity, the desire of money, false teaching, in order to keep them from knowing God and fulfilling his will. There are many believers that are ensnared, caught in the strongholds of Satan, caught in the wisdom of this world. The Lord's servant reaches out to them in hope, hope that God will set them free. Now, this is very important, hope in God, because if your hope is in God, then you can practice what this says. The Lord's servant does not quarrel. Why? Because his hope is in God. When your hope is in yourself, you'll raise your voice. You'll stomp down on the ground. You will throw your tension when you want your way because you think that your emotions and you're raising your voice will change another person. The Lord's servant knows better. We don't change people. God does. And your hope in your marriage and dealing with your, your, your spouse, your hope in your working with your coworker will be shown in how you respond in these difficult times. Is your hope in God or in yourself? Because the servant hopes in God, he doesn't fight or argue, Paul says. 
He doesn't believe he changed his heart. He knows only God can do that. His hope in God causes him to minister through God's word. His hope leads him to minister through the body of Christ since God works through his people. He relies strongly on prayer as he believes that the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective, James 5, 17, 16 says. His hope in God drives him to the Lord's resources. Secular ministers hope in the world and therefore rely on secular resources. To them, God's resources are not enough. Is your service founded on the hope, on hope in God? When God looks for a person to use, he finds a servant. In fact, I work at a college campus, and when they're asking me, well, Pastor Greg, what should I look for in a wife or in a husband? I say, find a servant. <laughs> find somebody that's already serving, because that's all marriage is. It's dying to yourself and serving someone else before yourself. And if you haven't been doing that, it's going to be a hard adjustment into marriage. And unfortunately, there used to be a time frame when people were trained for marriage, right? They're, they're, the, the women were trained for marriage. The men were trained to be husbands. Now we're trained to get the best job and to have the best career and to make the most money. We're trained all about self, and it's a harder adjustment for young people into marriage, right? And so I tell them, you want to get ready for marriage? Go find a way to serve at your church. Put somebody first. Allow yourself to be unappreciated because that's going to happen in marriage sometimes, right? you got to learn how to serve and put others first. That's the secret. Well, that's also the type of person that God uses, someone who's a servant. They know their master. They are kind. They teach God's word. They're not resentful. They are gentle. They hope in God, not in themselves or this world. How can we be greatly used by God? In conclusion, we must separate from ungodly relationships. No doubt in a crowd this large, there are some people that are in terror like Abraham was. They are in a season of delay. They're not progressing spiritually, and it largely has to do with the relationships that they keep. To be used greatly by God, we must flee evil desires. We don't run to them. We don't run to the to Instagram pages. We don't run to the websites. We're fleeing like Joseph did. That's a person that God can use. They're fuego. They don't want to become a captive. They realize sin is too dangerous. The movies they watch, they know it's too dangerous. They could become a captive, and so they're fleeing. They're running. To be greatly used by God, we must pursue godly character, both internally and out externally. To be greatly used by God, we must pursue godly relationships. Who are the people, the relationships that you are fostering? Who are you accountable to? Who are you confessing your sins to in the body of Christ? To be greatly used by God, we must become servants. Before we close, I've put some prayer pumps at the end of this message. They're going to put them up here. Um, I'm just going to read them, and then we're going to take a second to respond to the Lord.